All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction on our study. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have Your Word. Your Word informs us, instructs us, it reveals to us that which we must know in order to rightly interpret and understand all of the details of our lives that we may be properly oriented to you and properly oriented to your grace. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, as the psalmist said. And Father, we understand that if we do not understand your word aright, then we may not understand anything else correctly. Father, as we continue our study today in um, Psalm 118, As background to our study in Matthew, we pray that you would use this to challenge us to a greater, more focused trust in you, an understanding of how you are our deliverer, our savior, an understanding that there is no problem, no difficulty, no challenge, too great for your omnipotence, too great for your grace, and that it is only through trust in you that we can have genuine victory in this life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. Last week, we, on Saturday, was Armed Forces Day. In November the 11th, we have Veterans Day. Now, those three holidays are important, but often people are confused about why we celebrate each one of those. Armed Forces Day is our time to honor those who are currently serving in the Armed Forces. Memorial Day is a day in which we remember those who gave their lives, those who have died in the service of our country, in the wars of our nation. Veterans Day is when we honor those who have served in the Armed Forces. So each one to Each one focuses on a different group, and together they remind us that the freedom that we have has been uh, bought with a price, that we have freedom because we have had a strong military, and we have on numerous occasions had to defend this nation. Each generation has to decide on its own if it is going to defend its freedom, defend the Constitution of the United States. And in order for that to truly be effective, then we have to have a generation that is informed, that is educated, that understands that terrible word that is so so misused today and so distorted, history. 
we have to understand history, and history isn't what we want it to be. History is actually what happened, and we have to study history. And history is, is, tells us everything that has happened, and we can't talk about any subject or think about any subject without thinking about history. I was recently listening to somebody talk about uh, church history, and they made one of those statements that when you hear it, you say, well, that's just a blinding flash of the obvious. This was a professor of church history at a seminary, and he made the statement that, that the course that he taught on church history was the most important course in the entire curriculum at, in any seminary. And he went on to explain something, and I thought, well, that's really true. So, so every time that you study anything, you study the exegesis of a passage, you're going to read about what so-and-so said about it or so-and-so said about it or somebody else said about it. And if you don't know who those people are or what their context were, then you don't understand the significance of those statements. If you study grammar, you're going to study things that other people have said about about. Uh, Greek grammar and the history of Greek grammar. Same thing for Hebrew grammar. If you study anything about the Bible, you study theology, you study anything, sooner or later, probably a lot sooner than, than later, somebody's going to talk about Augustine or Irenaeus or Origen or John Calvin or Luther or Wesley or Billy Graham even. And if you don't understand who those people are, then you don't you can't really grasp what's being said. Well, you just take that and apply that to history as a whole. If you're going to talk about freedom, liberty, government, politics, the Constitution, then that's all embedded in history, the history of discussions on freedom and liberty going back not just to 1776, but those those men who came together to declare our independence from Britain knew exactly what they were doing, and they had a whole history behind them of understanding what liberty was, understanding the role and limitations of government that came out of centuries of political thought and political development going back to at least the Magna Carta in the early 13th century. And that provided them with a frame of reference for being able to discuss things and to argue their position. When you get a generation that doesn't appreciate history, then they will destroy their future. A people who do not understand their past and how they got to where they are will have no future. And that is one of the uh, one of the many things that is a tell when a culture is on the path to self destruction. And what has happened over the last hundred and fifty years, as a result of numerous philosophical changes and religious changes that have taken place, not only in this nation but in Western civilization, we have reached a point where we deny reality where we think that we can shift and reshape the past in order to, uh, in order to uh, substantiate these fantasies of political correctness and liberal utopianism. And when that happens, 
When any individual lives in the realm of fantasy instead of the realm of reality, he's on the path of self-destruction. And when they start making decisions based on fantasy instead of reality, they will realize that self-destruction. And when you expand that to a whole civilization and a whole culture, that's what happens. We stand in this generation because there have been hundreds of thousands of citizens in this nation who've given their lives to defend the original intent of the Constitution, to defend liberty in this nation. And when we take positions and beliefs that contradict that which gave birth to our culture and the greatness of America, then we are part of the problem and not part of the solution, and we dishonor their memories. One of the greatest things that I've seen happen in recent years are a lot of free courses that come out of uh, some different places, some different schools uh, on, on, the, on, on the Internet, such as Hillsdale, where you can get a great education. I encourage you to do that. They have courses on the history of the Constitution, history of the Declaration, history of capitalism, many different things. And I encourage you to become educated more and more because this is important. But the most important thing that we can do as Christians is just to know the Word of God and to apply the Word of God. And that's important because as this psalmist writes, he, they have come, Israel has come out of a horrific time of divine discipline, as we have seen. And his conclusion, the lesson that he brings to bear, is what he articulates in verses 8 and 9, that it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence. And the word there for confidence is the word to take refuge, than to take refuge in man. And it is better to trust in the Lord than to take refuge in princes. And see, that's what Israel in the kingdom of Judah failed to do. And uh, in the time before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the, the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., is they were looking to Egypt. They were looking to human alliances. They were looking to human viewpoint solutions in order to uh, n- not be destroyed. But when God determined to bring judgment on that nation, there was nothing they could do. And in fact, God told them just to surrender. Jeremiah talks about this. God told them to surrender. Those who surrendered to the Babylonians would live. But they chose to disobey God, and as a result, hundreds of thousands were killed. We have to understand the Word of God. And this is why in our study of Matthew, we're going back to Psalm 118. Because in Psalm 118, we find that there are uh, two verses that are quoted in this section in Matthew chapter 21 that we are studying, and there also forms a framework during the last day of Christ. As we look at this, the focal point this morning, the great verse that we'll hit is um, is in Psalm uh, 118. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a a verse that is quoted many times in the New Testament. Now, when we look at Psalm Psalm 118 in relation to Matthew 21 and that last week of Christ, just to remind you, Psalm 118.26, 
which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is quoted and sung by the crowds as they welcome Jesus during his triumphal entry in Matthew 21, 9. Psalm 118 is then quoted by Jesus. Psalm 118, 22 is quoted by Jesus as he denounces the religious leaders in Matthew 21, 42, where he says to the Pharisees, now remember, the Pharisees have all memorized the entire Hebrew scripture. And he says, haven't you read this? What an insult. Have, have you never read the scriptures? And then he quotes from Psalm 118, uh, 22. He quotes from Psalm 118, uh, 25, or, or 26 again, in um, Matthew 23, 39, when he says, For I say to you, you shall see, uh, see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, as they concluded the la- what is known as the Last Supper, which was a Seder meal, a Passover supper, the night before he went to the cross, the last thing they did was they sang this psalm. They would sing Psalms 113 through 116 at the beginning of the Seder, and they would sing Psalms 117, 118 at the end. These are part of the Hallel Psalms that praise the Lord, and I've covered that um, in the past. So, just brief review, Psalm 118 is the last of these Hallel Psalms. In the original context, and that's so important because as we get to the heart of the passages that are quoted in Matthew 21, we have to remember what the original context was because that sets the framework for why these people are singing uh, Save Now. Uh, the Hebrew word is Hoshiana, which is translated into Hebrew, as, I mean into Greek as Hosanna. Uh, why are they singing that? So the original context was would have been sung by a procession of people being led by a political or religious leader up to the Temple Mount. Now, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. It's not that large back then. He's going to be going up the Temple Mount, and they are singing of this psalm. Uh, the psalm in its original context was a communal thanksgiving psalm for a deliverance, uh, that God had given them over uh, their enemies and had brought them back to the land. That's the core to be able to understand the significance of what is being said here. Uh, last week I said that there's basic elements that you find in any Thanksgiving psalm, proclamation to praise God, that's the first four verses, an introductory summary of what had taken place in verses 5 to 7, then a report of the deliverance in verses 10 through 18, which is about as far as we got last time. Then there's a renewed vow of praise in Psalm 118, 19 through 28. And then the closing praise or instruction, uh, Psalm 118, 8 and 9, and then again in verses, verse 29. I also pointed out that we don't know who wrote it. We really don't know precisely the occasion for the psalm, but because of things that are said, we know that it's a time uh, where they're delivered from a time of severe chastening from the Lord, a time of severe uh, divine discipline. The heart of the praise is Psalm 118, 6 through 9, which focuses on the Lord, that the Lord is our only solution of hope, the only one who can deliver us. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. Great verses to memorize. What can man do to me? 
The Lord is for me among those who help me, therefore I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Great verses to memorize during a political year when you were just inundated with all of the political stories and all the political decision that ultimately our destiny is in the Lord's hands and we need to trust him. If we as a culture, as a civilization, as a people, as a nation do not trust God, then our security is ephemeral. Our future is in doubt. The only hope is the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't get involved politically. That doesn't mean that we don't need to vote. That doesn't mean that we become passive. But it does mean that you have to keep all of that civic responsibility, which we must be engaged in, in right perspective in relation to who is ultimately in control. Every year we see this. I'm as guilty as the next person. We come to an election. We hope the results will be one thing. They're not. And we are discouraged and depressed, which tells us that that's the clue. Our hope was in something other than the Lord. The Lord is the only one who never changes and who in whom we should have our only hope. Psalm 56.11 echoes this same thought, where the psalmist says, In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? This is a theme that's a drumbeat throughout the psalms, that we are to trust in the Lord, to trust in Him alone. Now, as we've studied through these initial verses, down through this, we've pointed out that the indications here are that the author is speaking in the first person singular. For example, in verse 10, all nations surrounded me, first person singular. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Again, first person singular. But nations do not surround an individual. Nations surround a nation. So that we learn from this that this person is a political or religious leader who is speaking for the nation, who's representing the nation. And so what he is saying is related to a national crisis, not an individual crisis. Four times he says that the problem is that they're surrounded by these nations. And then three times he says that the solution is that in the name of the Lord, that is on the basis of God's character... Name in the scripture often relates to the essence of something, the character of something, the attributes of something, so that when we believe in the name of Jesus, we are believing not in just the the nomenclature. We are believing in the person, the attributes, the character uh, of Jesus, that he is the God-man who entered into human history to go to the cross and to die on the cross for our sins. And so the psalmist says that the solution was that in the name of the Lord, that is on the basis of who Yahweh is, that is the God, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he said, I will destroy them. Three times he makes this statement, I will destroy them, I will destroy them, I will destroy them. And as I pointed out last time, this is really not an appropriate or correct translation. Uh, The word that is translated destroy, if you've got a New American Standard, it says, I will cut them off, which is much closer. 
as I pointed out last time, it's the Hebrew word mul, which uh, the noun form that comes across in, in modern Judaism is moil. The moil is, the ra- ra- is a rabbi who comes and performs the bris, the circumcision ceremony on a young male baby. So this is, a, this is not a military term. There are a lot of military terms in Hebrew for destroying the enemy, killing the enemy, annihilating the enemy, uh, but this isn't one of those military terms. This is a, a religious term. And as I pointed out last time, it's helpful for us to understand this because the writer of the psalm is talking about something spiritual and not something uh, physical, how God did something, how God intervened to deliver the nation. Now, as I pointed out last time, this didn't happen through physical circumcision. That, that there were only a couple of instances that happened in the Old Testament where uh, there was uh, circumcision in relation to military battles, and that really doesn't work in terms of conquering the enemy. But Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. See, physical circumcision was really just a ritual that was designed to depict a spiritual reality of something that transforms a person from the inside out. And in its most basic sense, this sense of a, of a, of a um, uh, circumcision of the heart means a change of mind, a change of status. Uh, but it's applied in the New Testament in a different way. And what we see in the background of this is that the victory that comes and that came in the past related to Israel's uh, victory over their divine judgment is a type of the individual believer's victory over uh, sin and the sin nature in Christ because Christ the Messiah is the one who... Uh, circumcises us spiritually at the moment of salvation. Paul alludes to this in two places, Romans 2.29 and Colossians 2.13. Romans 2.29, he said he is a Jew. He's talking about the difference between a tr- someone who's truly Jewish, who is not just a Jew on the outside, but is one on the inside. And he says he is a Jew who is one inwardly. That's not based on just external circumcision, he says, and circumcision is that of the heart, by the Spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. So he is applying that to what happens. And then later on, for example, in Colossians 2.13, he says, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In Ephesians 2, it's you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Instead of saying sins, here he says the uh, uncircumcision of your flesh. That is that that when we're under the uh, when we're originally born, we're spiritually dead. We have a sin nature that controls us. But when we are saved, when we trust in Christ as Savior, in that in that the many things that happen at the instant of salvation that God does for us by making us alive together with Him, there is a cutting off of the power of the sin nature. That's what Romans 6, 1 through 6 talks about as the foundation for the spiritual life. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are uh, buried with him and we are raised again to new life where the sin nature is not the 
uh, total authority over us that it was prior to our salvation. And so Psalm 118 foreshadows this with this, this language related to the fact that the Lord gives, gives victory through the spiritual circumcision of the enemy. Now, what happened historically, what happened historically is that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans were used by, by God to bring judgment, bring his discipline uh, upon the kingdom of Judah. God had promised in Deuteronomy 28 and in Leviticus chapter 26 that if Israel violated the covenant with him, if Israel was involved in idolatry and worshipped other gods and disobeyed the law, that God would discipline them. And there would be different stages or cycles of discipline, and the most extreme of which, if they continued to be rebellious, would be that God would have them overrun by enemy forces and that they would lose the land that God had promised them because by disobedience to the law, they would demonstrate that they weren't worthy to live in the land. And so God would bring judgment upon them and take them out of the land. But the promise, the hope, is that God promised that he would restore them to the land, and eventually they would be restored and possess the land forever and ever. Now, the Babylonians were used by God to take Israel out of the land. But then God brought judgment upon the Babylonians, and they were defeated in uh, 538 B.C., and uh, Cyrus and the Persians uh, came into power, and God changed the heart of Cyrus. That's the idea here. He circumcised the enemy. The Gentile nations had been seeking to destroy Israel. Israel just and Judah were just this little bitty, almost worthless uh, little nation that stood in the way of everybody else. If you were Egypt and you wanted to go uh, north and you wanted to uh, control the trade routes, then you were blocked by this little bitty, uh, these two little kingdoms of Israel and Judah. If you were in the north and you wanted to uh, take out uh, Egypt, then you would have to go through and deal with these this little bitty nation that stood in the way, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And so the Assyrians came down, they had destroyed and defeated the northern kingdom in 722. Uh, in the eyes of the great powers, these little nation, this little nation of the, these Jews was just something that was like a gnat. It was, it was in the way. It was bothersome. It was, they were a pain. And so they, they treated them with little respect and just hoped to uh, take them out of the way. Uh, but Cyrus has this change of mind, and he restores them not only to the land, but he pays for them to go back to the land to rebuild the temple, and he supports the reestablishment of the nation. That's the backdrop here that's important. Now, in Psalm 113, 118, verse 13, rather, what we see here is a statement by the psalmist. He says, You pushed me violently that I may fall, but the Lord helped me. Now, the you here, it's important to pay attention. It's a singular in the original. Uh, He's saying, You pushed me severely down. You pushed me down. now, this doesn't read smoothly in the original. You pushed me violently uh, that I might fall. And so there are some who have tried to and reinterpreted the text and rewritten it. I was pushed down. But 
it makes it clear that the you here, he's talking to the nations collectively, that they were the ones who pushed Israel down, that, that tried to destroy Israel, that for a while it appeared as if they had been successful. But then he says, but it's the Lord, it's Yahweh who helped me. And this word for help is the verb atzar, which is from the um, related to the noun atzar. I pointed this out also last week, which is a word that is only used basically of God as a noun and of the wife. The wife is to be a helper to the man. This is uh, what God says in Genesis two eighteen through twenty. And then in Psalm 118.14, the psalmist then breaks out into a statement of what God has done. He says, The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. Now, when we think of salvation, we think of phase one justification, but that's not what he's talking about here. The word for salvation is a word that he often describes simply deliverance or rescue from a physical calamity. Sometimes it's applied to health and healing. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word here is uh, Yeshua. Uh, that becomes the name of Jesus. In the Hebrew, the name of Jesus is, is Yeshua. So he says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my deliverance. Now, when we look at the imagery here, we have the picture of a crushing defeat in verse 13. And this is so crushing that it threatens the very existence and the very future of the nation. Now, if you think about it historically, what you've seen in history is the Assyrian nation grow to its great power, expand throughout the Middle East, and as they've come down through the Levant, they have uh, completely destroyed and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. They came like a high tide up to the walls of Jerusalem, and then God miraculously intervened, and and overnight the, the soldiers of the Assyrians that had surrounded the city uh, were killed. Sennacherib wakes up in the morning, and his army is dead, and he flees back to his capital where he is going to be assassinated uh, by his uh, own family members. Um, they have not survived. Then you have have the Babylonians, and the Babylonians have also uh, grown to great strength, and they have destroyed the southern kingdom. And as you read about this, you see that Israel appears now to have been totally obliterated, like the other nations around them, the Philistines, uh, the Syrians, the Arameans, uh, the Moabites, the Ammonites, have all been taken over by these foreign powers and have, like the Jews in the northern kingdom, they have been relocated to other parts of the empire. The only group that survived, the only group, the only people that are restored as a nation are the Jews. Now, that's just not an accident of history. This indicates God is faithful to his covenant, faithful to his plan. At the end of the 70 years that he had uh, predicted through Jeremiah that would be the time of their captivity, they were restored back to the land. And so that it is as if the nation is reborn. And God's plan is being renewed with Israel, and it indicates uh, his faithfulness. And so the emphasis here is on the fact that this is the Lord who does this. He is 
my strength. He's the strength of Israel. He is my song. And that is a figure of speech, technically, for those of you who are interested, that's called a metonymy of the effect for the cause. That means you talk about the effect, which is they're singing, they're rejoicing, they're praise to God, uh, and that's emphasized in place of the cause, which is God's deliverance. So the emphasis is on God as strength and song, and this echoes a couple of other psalms. Psalm 18, 1 and 2, the psalmist says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What a great couple of verses to memorize, to be reminded of the fact that God is the one who protects us no matter what the circumstances might be. But it goes back even further than that. This statement about the Lord being our strength is a reminder of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus event. In Exodus 15:2, in the song of deliverance, the song of Moses, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So Psalm 118 takes us back to these historical events, these things that have happened where God has delivered them in the past. Now, as we move forward in Psalm 118:15. The psalmist says, The voice of rejoicing in salvation is in the tents of the righteous. And then we have the first of four statements where he says, or three statements, where he talks about the right hand of the Lord. The right hand of the Lord. When you hear read these phrases, the arm of the Lord, the finger of God, the hand of the Lord, these all are metaphors for the power of of God. His power is in his arm, it's in his hand, it's in his finger. He is the one who is strong. And so when we think about this, when it talks about the right hand of the Lord is done valiantly, he's he's praising the power, the omnipotence of the God of God. And in verse fifteen when it says that the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous, uh, this is not to be taken as some sort of allusion to tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place in the fall. It is a feast that, that foreshadows the coming of the king to establish his kingdom. But this isn't talking about this. This isn't an allusion to, to tabernacles. Uh, this is probably a reference to the fact that the, the, the people have come back from captivity and they're still in the process of rebuilding Jerusalem. They have probably just completed building the temple, so it's probably around 516 or just after 516. And they are still living in tents, uh, literally living in tents, mobile homes, whatever. They have just come back for a short time. Uh, and so they're rebuilding the city after it's just been reduced to rubble some 70-plus years earlier. And this is uh, this idea of them staying, living in tents uh, is also mentioned in the minor prophets who wrote after the exile. So we know that this was a characteristic of this period, that the people lived in tents. So they are rejoicing. It, it helps us understand this historical context. And he's praising the power of God, that the right hand of God is omnipotence, is exalted. The right hand of the Lord uh, does valiantly. And then he states a conclusion again. 
I'm not going to die. The nation is not going to be destroyed. The nation is not going out of existence. I shall not die, but live. The God has a plan for us. God has a future and a hope for Israel. That's the realization here that God has brought the nation back from the brink of death, is reestablishing it. Nothing like this has been seen before in history. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Now, when we talk about praising God, we, we so often just are superficial in, in our Christian culture. We think praising God means to say praise God or hallelujah. But when we look at a psalm like this, which is a hallel psalm, from which we get the word hallelujah, it's a praise psalm, we see that, that it's not just saying praise God. It is describing what God has done and how God has delivered us from a and delivered the nation in this situation from a historical disaster and is explaining what the lessons are that were learned in that particular disaster. And so he says he's going to declare the works of the Lord. That's why this is sometimes these types of psalms are some kind sometimes called declarative praise psalms. Verse 18, he describes the event again that the Lord has chastened me severely. That tells us again what the historical circumstances are, that the nation has gone through severe judgment or discipline. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Now, this this ends this description of the praise and the cause for the praise in the psalm. And then starting in verse 19, the leader then begins to declare his praise to God. There's a shift in what is taking place, and this last part is more of a uh, liturgical uh, worship where the community is described as they come together as a community to rejoice and to praise God for his deliverance. And so, as we read this, we must think about this in terms of historical context. So much has happened in in interpreting Scripture where people read it and they read into the text without understanding this, this context. For example, as we begin the next section, the psalmist says, "'Open to me the gates of righteousness.'" Now, there are many people who read that and they think, "'Oh, this is heaven.'" going to heaven, entering into the pearly gates, going into heaven. Open to me the gates of righteousness, I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. No, this is a historical context where the people are being called to praise God as they go to the temple. It would have been sung in a procession going up to the temple. And so where are the, what are the gates? The gates are the entry into the temple where they would come together as a nation to worship God and to praise God for his deliverance. It's very likely that this psalm was written at the time of the dedication of Zerubbabel's temple. So he says, open to me uh, the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is his declaration of praise as the nation is going to um, going to enter into the temple. Now, these are not lost people who are wanting to be saved. Uh, these are people who are believers who are expressing their praise to God 
for what he has already done and accomplished for them, that he has delivered them from all the nations, and he has allowed them to live and to be restored to the land. Now in verse 20, which states, This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. It doesn't flow with verse 19 and verse 21. So the question that we should ask is, who is speaking in verse 20? Verse 19 is the leader of the group who is taking them into the gates. Verse 20 appears to be the response of the Levites who are holding the gate, reminding those who want to enter into the temple that they have to be uh, ritually prepared. They have to be cleansed, and they have to be prepared to worship God, that not just anyone can worship, that the righteous shall enter. These are not those who are positionally righteous, who are justified, but those who have uh, cleansed themselves through the appropriate sacrifices before they come to worship. This is the same kind of thing, as I mentioned earlier, that we do at the beginning of every Bible class as a reminder that those who want to enter into worship with God and study his word need to be cleansed of sin. So we see a pattern here in the Old Testament that if you were coming into the temple, that the worshipers would be reminded that only those who have been spiritually prepared or ritually prepared through cleansing can come and worship the Lord. Psalm 118.21 is their response. I will praise you, for you have answered me, and you have come, you have become my Yeshua, my Savior, my salvation. And then we come to the core of the quotes that we find um, in our passage in Matthew, many passages in the New Testament that quote from Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, when you hear that, if you've got any knowledge of the New Testament, immediately you're thinking that this is talking about the Messiah. But what, what one of the things I've been laboring to teach you the last three Sundays that we've been in this is that this is talking about a historical situation. This is not prophetic, directly prophetic. This is talking about something that happened historically. So the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is something that has happened already at the time this was sung, probably around 516 B.C. And then it says, this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He's praising for something God has already done. And then says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, when, when the psalmist writes this, he's not saying, he's not talking about just a beautiful day. No clouds, sunshine, low humidity. He's, you know, that, that, that's such a superficial application. This is talking about a specific historical deliverance of God that occurred when God restored the nation in 538 B.C., when God brought them back. And that this is the day that the Lord has made. is talking about how this has been brought to a completion when the temple has been completed and they are now able to worship God in the temple as they did before. 
So this is talking about a historical event. So that when we read the stone which the builders rejected, what's the stone? When we read that he has become the chief cornerstone, what's that alluding to? In terms of the historical event, the stone is Judah that has been rejected by the nations. See, since man's fall, there have been the, been the development in history broadly of two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God in a broad sense, not the kingdom in the sense of the millennial kingdom. But man is seeking to assert his own right to rule himself over against God. And so the nations are seeking to build their kingdom. This started uh, at uh, the Tower of Babel as Nimrod sought to establish himself and to establish a worship that was apart from God. Uh, The nations are the builders who seek to establish their kingdom and their dominion over the earth. Uh, the stone, Judah, has been seen as something worthless and useless for the, for the nations to just roll over and destroy. And so this is the nation that has been viewed by the Gentiles as being useless, worthless, and why sh- what significance has it? It's the stone, the nation, the builders rejected. It's not pertinent to or significant or relative to the building of the kingdom of man. So the, the builders historically were the nations, the uh, Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, who sought to rule and dominate Israel. The stone that's rejected is Israel, but in restoration, Israel has become the foundation for God's kingdom program. God has restored the nation. He is going to fulfill his comfort covenant with Israel. He is going to build the nation, and from this inauspicious beginning, he will eventually establish the kingdom. He will, uh, through the reestablishment of Israel, this will eventually lead to the coming of the Messiah, and the Messiah eventually will be crucified. There'll be the lull of the church age, the parenthesis, and then when the Lord returns, he will establish his kingdom. That's the typological application. The stone, therefore, is Israel, but Israel is typologically fulfilled in all of its intent and purpose in the Messiah. Uh, The builders, in terms of the application we see at Jesus' time, are the religious leaders of Israel who are still trying to establish the kingdom of man through their human viewpoint religion. And they reject the Messiah as not being relevant, significant, or valuable, and yet Uh, After the resurrection, he is the one who will eventually come to establish his, his kingdom. This imagery of the stone is found in numerous Old Testament passages which would have been known by the writer of this hymn. For example, uh, example in Isaiah 28:16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. This is a messianic prophecy. Zechariah 3 9, for behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes, behold I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. See, it has that prophetic significance that this stone is the stone which destroys and removes iniquity and brings in the kingdom. 
Uh, it's related to the stone that's cut without hands in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that represents the coming of the Messianic kingdom. And Jesus quotes this in Matthew 21, 42, uh, with reference as he is arguing with the Pharisees. Paul uses it in Ephesians 2.20 that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone for the church, and Peter applies it also in 1 Peter 2, uh, 6 and 7, and we'll be getting to that when we get there in our study of 1 Peter on Thursday night. And so the response of the people in verse 29 is to say, Save now, I pray, O Lord. They are moving beyond the deliverance that has already occurred and calling for him to work out the ultimate deliverance. And what they are saying is hoshia na. This is two words in the Greek, and it means to save or deliver now. The root of of uh, hoshia is the verb yasha, which means to save. It's where we get the name Jesus, Yeshua. Save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity. So in Matthew 21... As these followers and believers in Jesus are laying down the palm branches, welcoming him in, into Jerusalem, when they quote this psalm, they know exactly what they are doing. This is the king that has offered the kingdom, and they are welcoming the king who will bring in the kingdom that has been promised. They understand that he is the coming one. They understand that he is the one who can, who will establish the kingdom, and they are welcoming him. And so, to understand that is to understand this context from Psalm 118. In John 11:27, Jesus was talking to Martha, and she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is what? Who is to come into the world. See, this it goes back to this, this uh, quotation in Psalm 118. In verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The one who comes in the name of the Lord is understood as the Messiah, the one who establishes the kingdom. And in the thinking uh, between uh, 516 and the coming of Christ, the thinking is that the Messiah is this coming one. He's referred to as the one who is coming, the coming one. And so Martha uses it that way in verse 27. So as we wrap this up in preparation for going forward in Matthew 21, let me make a couple of points of comparison. Between Psalm 118 and Matthew 21, first of all, the nation in Psalm 118 is partially restored from divine discipline. In Matthew 21, the nation is on the edge of another great divine discipline, which will come in A.D. 70. Third, the solution in Psalm 118 is the restoration of the temple and the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Fourth, the solution in Matthew 21 is to welcome the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Fifth, in Psalm 118, God alone delivered the nation from the plans of the nations, the plans of the Gentiles. And sixth, when the coming one comes, he will deliver the nation. He will destroy the plots of the kings, Psalm 2 and Revelation 19, and he will then establish his kingdom. In Matthew 22, that solution is rejected by the religious leaders, but Matthew 23:39, when Jesus says, I will not come until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that indicates that there will be a future recovery and restoration 
of the nation. And so the final application is that the solution for every believer is to trust in God rather than in government, rather than in politics, rather than in human methods or in human works. The only government that will provide perfection is the government of a perfect king who is the Messiah. And that won't happen until Jesus returns. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word. We're reminded that Jesus came to solve the greatest problem that we will ever face, and that is the problem of sin. He solved that problem by going to the cross. On the cross, he died in our behalf, in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. Scripture says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single person is born in sin and sins, and we are all under condemnation. But Jesus took that condemnation upon himself. The certificate of our debt was nailed to the cross. So that the issue now is not our sin, our failures. The issue is what we believe, what we trust in. Are we trusting in Christ to save us? Are we trusting in our own works, our own efforts, our own motivations? Scripture says that it's, we're saved by grace through faith and not of works lest any man should boast. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening this morning who's never trusted Christ as Savior, who has no real hope and no real understanding of truth, that they would respond by trusting in Christ alone this morning. The offer is a free offer. There are no strings attached. The issue is simple, just to believe in Jesus as your Savior, and you will have eternal life. For the rest of us, we need to understand that we are saved for a purpose, We have been redeemed, we are owned by you, and we are in your royal family. And now the issue for us is to live, to be disciples, to grow and mature in our spiritual life, and to serve you with all of our being. And we pray that we would respond positively to that challenge as well. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.